Welcome to the Sibley Nature Center podcast. Here at Sibley, we celebrate the history and nature of the Llano Estacado. Through a broad range of educational programs and personal experiences given on site, in schools, meeting rooms, and at private gatherings, we encourage community members to be knowledgeable about the flora, fauna, and history of our region. My name is Phil Salonik, and I'm the Education Director here at Sibley. Again, I'm joined by our museum scientist and naturalist, Michael Nickel. Hello, Michael. Hello. Thank you for being here today. It's my pleasure. And a big shout out to the Recording Library of West Texas and Bailey Hennis for having us in to uh, record and master our audio. Thank you, Bailey. And uh, Michael, you and Bailey uh, have a long um, standing relationship. Y'all have done some work together in the past, too. Yeah, uh, one of my first projects when I came to Sibley Nature Center was to, to uh, design and produce uh, uh, four large mural-sized paintings. And Bailey was still in high school at the time, and she was very artistic, and I needed help very much. And so she was just an absolute blessing to have work with me and, and just have a project to, to work on together. And and I feel like we... we Struck a pretty good friendship. Yeah, in that project I worked on, y'all did those four big panels that we have hanging on the back wall of our auditorium. Yes. What are those panels? Well, I call that uh, uh, that project uh, Four uh, Seasons and Four Cultural Influences on the Yanomix Staccato. And so it, it's, it, the, the four panels are, of course, uh, spring, summer, fall, and winter, but also representing uh, the cultural influences of the Native Americans and uh, the, the energy industry and uh, farming and ranching and uh, also four different habitat types on the Yano Estacado. So it's, it's just kind of a, a, a multi-theme sort of, th- uh, sort of a, a project, but, uh, but incorporating the four seasons, four cultural uh, influences, and four habitats of the Yano Estacado. Well, they sure are beautiful. I love to uh, look at them every day when I well, turn on or turn I, off the they lights. They would not be quite so spectacular if, it, if I didn't have Bailey's help. Well, thank you too, Bailey. Uh, well, Michael and I are here today to talk about something very exciting happening at Sibley Nature Center right now. Michael? Well, uh, what we're doing at the Sibley Nature Center uh, right now is we're putting together a completely brand new exhibit. This is the first totally new exhibit uh, at Sibley Nature Center, well, at least since I've been there. And uh, I call it uh, From Pleistocene to Holocene, Surviving the Ice Age. And so it it is a modular sort of exhibit uh, of of different modules uh, representing different animal types. But it's not only just the animals that... uh, the, the megafauna that became extinct toward the end of the Ice Age, but it's also their, the contemporary survivors of the Ice Age, which we still have with us today, although a bit modified for for the habitat, that for the, for the environment that we live in right now. When I say modular, I, I, you know, a modular anything, it's, it's, it's something that stands alone, but it can go together with something else. So, so everything is mounted on wheels, and so everything can be rolled around, repositioned story reconfigured and so it's it's just well i've got this one module it's it's dedicated just to the bears 
another module just dedicated to dogs, one dedicated to cats, and one dedicated to small carnivores, and so on and so forth. The structure is just basically wooden boxes, but smaller boxes on top of boxes. And uh, I've got the color coordination that's going on. It's, it's, it seems to be a recurring theme throughout Sibley Nature Center now. And, and so it, it, color-wise, it looks like it fits in the place just, just fine. But anyway, it's just large boxes with smaller boxes at different elevations. And so uh, it, it's, it's just a way of, of, of um, exhibiting things on a modular level. I hate using a word to describe itself or define itself. But in, anyway, just uh, smaller units to make up a big exhibit. And on top of these modules, there are skulls of yeah. these creatures, some other biofacts. Yes. Also taxidermy um, models of yeah. the, the so, living. So, f for instance, like on the, um, on the cat module, I'll have uh, uh, replica skulls of, of a saber-toothed cat, uh, another one of a scimitar-toothed cat. But, uh, and also of an American lion, we did have lions in North America that were about 25% bigger than any African lion today. So they were, they were huge cats. But uh, in, this same, in this same module, I've also got the cats we have today, mountain lion, bobcat. I've, I've got a taxidermy bobcat that seems to be having a hissy fit against this saber-toothed cat skull. So. <laughs> So when you say Pleistocene, that refers to the uh, what, what we also call the most recent ice age. That's correct. <clears throat> and then Holocene would be the time period or the epoch that we're in now. That is correct. It's all of, all of human history, uh, all of, uh, human innovations and inventions and and thoughts and processes, all the way from the very beginning to now. That's the Holocene. So the the Pleistocene. Um, being ten to fifteen thousand years ago, uh, roughly. The, the yeah, roughly. Uh, I think uh, the current uh, recognized. Uh, it's it, it's a continuum sort of thing. It's not like uh, you know one day there's the ice <laughs> age and the next day there wasn't. But about eleven thousand five hundred years ago is the generally accepted uh, time of that transition from Pleistocene to Holocene. When we think about, uh, and we've talked about this in, I think, episode one, we covered um, maybe the tail end of the Ice Age. Um, but when we talk about Ice Age in the Permian Basin or West Texas or the Llano Estacado, it's not necessarily sh sheets of glacial ice. No, we did not have any of those glacial ice sheets this far south. Uh, but we did have a different type of habitat. Um, Think, if you will, like in the elevations of, of the Davis Mountains. Okay. That type of habitat would have extended downward into the lower lands as well. And so it was more foresty? Uh, more of like a savanna. Okay. Yeah. Uh, kind of a grassy plains with a scattering of trees. And so it was a cooler, wetter time. Uh, that's not to say it was, it was, you know, particularly icy or cold here, but it was certainly cooler and wetter than it is today. So during that time, um, the megafauna would be cruising around like um, mastodons. Well, when we when we say megafauna, we're f referring to the uh, 
the, the big animals that were in excess of 99 pounds. Okay. And so not necessarily huge animals. I mean, certainly deer would be considered to be megafauna, but also at that time we did have mammoths and mastodons and giant ground sloths and saber-toothed cats and giant armadillos, and I could just keep going on. And at the same time, there were humans walking around with all those yes. creatures. And yes. the huge bison, the bison antiquus, and maybe several others? Bi- bison antiquus in particular, that was the one of the main uh, uh, items for hunting by, by a group of people that we call the Folsom people. And they would hunt those using the atlatl? Most likely atlatl, yes. Which is that, like a spear, but we call it a dart. Well, it's, it's kind of an, a stick that you held in your hand with kind of a, a, a notch at the end of it to hold in place a, a uh, lightweight spear or a dart to give your arm uh, greater power and distance for uh, throwing that dart. So the, the exhibit, Pleistocene to Holocene, is what is it exactly? Well, I've got uh, several examples of uh, uh, restorations, or not restorations, but uh, modules of some of the more uh, well-known uh, megafauna species, thing, things like a giant ground sloth, uh, saber-toothed cat, uh, 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 giant short-faced bear. These are animals that we had here in our region as well. And so I'm not only having the examples of the animals that, uh, that became extinct, but I'm also giving examples. We're, we're using our specimens that we've had at Sibley Nature Center since I've been there uh, of, of taxidermy animals that, uh, that basically survived the Ice Age. And so things like, uh, uh, like the American badger, it, it, it predated the Ice Age here. And so we still have them today. And so things like the badger or, or mountain lion or, or American black bear, those are also incorporated into the exhibit. Yeah, this is really neat because <clears throat> we have these creatures here now. Mm-hmm. We have specimens of many of these creatures at Sibley Nature Center. But with this new exhibit, um, that'll bring a lot of context to the, the creatures that live here now and Yes, I I think it's important that that we have the opportunity to put our specimens that we've had at Sibley Nature Center just basically as static specimens without any real storyline. Well, now I can put them into a context, make a story that incorporates them, their past and their present. That that they're survivors of the ice. That they're basically survivors. That's that's a little bit oversimplification of a statement, but... Uh, in some ways, that's true. They are survivors of the Ice Age. Yeah, that's in, that's incredible. And just like we talked about um, in our first episode, the Midland Discovery was um, the little woman's skull that was found out on Scarborough Ranch, just yes. 10 or 15 miles uh, here from Sibley. Um, those humans were walking around with these, these megafaunas, these big animals, and... Um, just like we have modules of these these animals, we'll also have a human module. I will also be incorporating a, a module spe- specifically for the the humans that were that were here. I'm focusing mostly on the uh, Paleolithic hunters. Uh, we have uh, examples of their projectile points, things like uh, 
Clovis and Folsom and Midland and Plainview and First View points, uh, but uh, and also a, a modern day interpretation of an atlatl. But also, I'd like to incorporate a little bit of the story of the ghost tracks of uh, the White Sands area of New Mexico, which is creating a lot of buzz in the scientific community. Can you speak a little bit more about the ghost tracks there? I don't know when they were initially discovered, but uh, certainly more is being published about them now. It's a series of human footprints of different ages, uh, teenage footprints, taking care of young children footprints. And, and, you know, at at, at some point or another, the little children footprints disappear, but you still see the bigger people footprints continuing on. And later, the, the little child footprints continue. So... Surely we had some child care going on. But what's really amazing is within the same sediments, we find footprints of Colombian mammoth and giant ground sloth. And in one set of tracks, there's also an indication of interaction between those humans and that giant ground sloth. Yeah, it's, I wonder what the picture paints, you know. What, well, you know, what picture is painted by those Well, based, based upon human behavior, I, I suspect it was not the ground sloth's best day. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. What is so important about those tracks? Because they, they change the maybe um, accepted timeline? Well, what's really fascinating about them is some of the plant material that has been crushed into the sediments by the human tracks has been carbon dated to about 23,000 years ago. And that puts an additional 10,000 years or so that, that humanity has been here in this area. That was, for, for ever since the 1930s and 40s, there was a very strong scientific dogma that Clovis people were the first people in North America and they migrated across the barren land bridge from, uh, from Russia to, through Alaska into North America, well, the, well, the, the, the ghost tracks will add about 10,000 years to that. So people were well established here in the southwestern United States when Clovis people arrived. Many, many, many years yes. before. Yeah. Wow. yeah, I think that's fascinating because, you know, even if we were nomadic walking peoples, the White Sands aren't that far away. That's right. And... Surely they, they knew about, uh, you know, animal migrations and things like that. And, and, and perhaps they knew about the Llano Estacado. Sure. It's not that far away. So right now we have a canine module on display. Yes. Feline module. Yeah. Bear module. And small carnivores. Small, car- small carnivores. Yeah. So four modules right now. Yes. How many modules do you visualize at this time? Well, when <laughs> the exhibit is all said and done, I, I envision perhaps 10, maybe up to 12 different modules. And so I'm currently working on a module of uh, what are a group of animals called the Xenarthrans. Uh, explain that just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, Xenarthrans are a particularly weird group of animal that... Uh, uh, that in the lower regions of, of, their, of their spine, they had extra struts for, for extra strength and stability of the lower back, which is probably an adaptation for digging. 
And so the xenarthrins that we, that we have with us are things like sloths, armadillos, and anteaters. And what's really fascinating is, is just prior to the Pleistocene, during a, during a time period, during, a, during a, uh, an epoch called the Pliocene, before that, South America was an island continent. And, and think like, uh, like Australia. What happens to the plants and animals when they are, go through, uh, uh, through time isolated? Some strange things happen. Well, some strange animals and plants had their origins in South America. Well, during the Pliocene, uh, that was when the Panama land bridge was formed, connecting North and South America. And so when that happened, it allowed an interchange of plants and animals between North and South America. And so South American animals migrated North, North American mammals migrated South. And so that's why we have things like armadillos with us today. They had their origins in South America, but we've got our own North American species. Wow. And likewise, uh, bears migrated from, the, from North America into South America. Did I answer your, 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 your question that you asked, or did I? Yeah, sorry? you did. Did I? Yeah, you're talking about how many modules? Oh, okay. you, I, I'm, you I'm currently working on a Xenarthur module, but also I will have uh, modules on, uh, on uh, uh, migration, not only bird migration, but also butterfly migration. It's this term, time period that's believed that the monarch migration had its origins as well. Uh, I will also be working on a module uh, for, for rodents, uh, one for camels and horses, one for deer and uh, the pronghorn, and I'll also be working on a module for, for bison. What about a um, mammoth module? That's right. I've got a, I've got a proboscidean module. Proboscideans, things like uh, mammoths and mastodons, but I want to throw another strange elephant-like animal in there called a gomphothere. So I'll be talking about that as, as well. Ooh, sounds interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we have a, a mammoth tusk that was yes. donated to us by the Museum of the Southwest. Museum of the Southwest. No real context to it. No, there there's no provenance with it, and so it was just a mammoth tusk. They wanted to know if I could if we could use it at Sibby Nature Center, and so absolutely. And so uh, I, I've got volunteer help that's uh, helping me uh, one day a week, helping to. Uh, uh, to conserve the mammoth tusks, uh, to help um, fill in cracks, things like that, with uh, uh, conservation-grade materials, and so that way it will stabilize it. But it's, 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 it's a real tusk. And uh, so that, that was the actual start of this whole exhibit, was just taking care of that tusk, and then uh, we got a grant to build a, a platform for it and a big glass top over it. And, and once that was done, I was going to wipe my hands and walk away from it, and I say. Like, project done and then uh, uh, our executive director kind of uh, took me aside and we started talking about it and he encouraged me to uh, think about it a little bit more and perhaps go bigger yeah so, there's more story to be told there's yeah. a lot more story to be told <clears throat> but that's that was the start of it was the uh, conservation and exhibit of this mammoth tusk so when you talk about stabilizing that mammoth tusk what do you mean well uh, we don't have um, uh, indoor climate control in Sibley Nature Center. So the temperature fluctuates, the humidity fluctuates, and you have expanding and contracting of, of everything. And on something like this mammoth tusk with all these cracks, 
if I were just to leave it as it was, eventually it would fall apart over time. And so this way, as I'm basically making a conservation-grade paper mache and filling it into the cracks, it helps give it stability. But it's also conservation-grade in, in, in the respect that if ever it needs to be undone, it can be undone. Do we have enough room at Sibley Nature Center for this exhibit? I'm hoping we do. <laughs> it's uh, true confession here. Uh, a lot of this is I'm, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. Now, what about a timeline um, for completion of 12 modules? Uh, we're looking at uh, probably well into next year. Um, uh, I'm, I'm basically a, a, a one-man band on this, and so uh, uh, I'm, I'm having to uh, basically do all the jobs, and I occasionally get uh, volunteer help, uh, like w- with, with the uh, mammoth tusk conservation. But otherwise, when it comes to just designing and writing the, the, the script for the, for the exhibit and selecting the specimens and uh, uh, procuring the, the, the materials to exhibit them, and then I have to contract out uh, to have the um, display cases uh, uh, made, but I but I paint them, so it's it's a labor intensive. Well, it's basically a labor of love on my part. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems like um, about a, a module a month is that's, pretty close. Uh, that's that's kind of close. Uh, some maybe about module every month and a half, and some modules are going to be a little bit more involved than others too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can just say that. Uh, for all, all of y'all listening that haven't seen um, the four modules that are out now, um, everything looks great. And if you want to come into Sibley and um, get a little teaser of what the entire exhibit will look like upon completion, please come see us because it's uh, not by any means uh, closed. You know, we are open and have visitors, and um, it's still a great um insight into the the species that have been here and again the survivors of the ice age and just a great exhibit and if i could add something here uh we've also discussed this that uh, uh, we are incorporating qr code technology into the exhibit and so uh you can read as much of the exhibit or as little of the exhibit as you wish we're also working with the hancock advertising uh, uh, group to uh, for for banner type displays, that this is actually a, a an exhibit of two two stories. There there's a big story and a smaller story. The smaller story is about the animals themselves, but the bigger story are about the bigger events like uh, things like climate change and domestication and migration and, and and things like that. Those those are the big story type things, and so we're we're telling two different levels of stories. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a big deal. I mean, this exhibit is is awesome, Thank and you. it's going to be rolled out over the course of a year plus. But I think we're going to have some big events around the openings of this exhibit. And when you say uh, telling the story of climate change and migration and domestication, you know, the funny thing is, do we really know? What led to the extinction of a lot of this megafauna? Well, that's a kind of a loaded question that's <laughs> hotly debated in scientific circles. Uh, 
Uh, we, we actually have a better understanding of the extinction of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago than we have an understanding of the, of the quaternary extinction event. Perhaps, perhaps there was an asteroid impact very similar to the extinction of the dinosaurs. But there's also uh, this wild card that's been in, in, introduced into, into the equation, and that wild card is us. There's a lot of debate as to what role humanity played in the extinction of these Ice Age animals. Uh, one of the leading hypotheses today is what's called the overkill hypothesis. We actually had more people here in, in, than, than a lot of us realized during that time, and perhaps humanity had a, a huge impact now, granted, climate was changing at this particular time, too. When I say this particular time, I'm, I'm talking about from about 2.5 million years ago to, to about 11,500 years ago. Geologically, that's not a long time span. And so we're having a major climate shift that's taking place during that time, a time from cooler, wetter types of environment, uh, certainly frozen at the polar ends of the world, to, to something that was as warmer and drier that we have trends that are going on today. And so animals and plants are having to survive this. And so how much did climate change affect the populations of animals as opposed to how much did humans just basically uh, uh, overhunt their, their resources? We, we really don't know. And that's a, it's, it's an area of hot debate. I guess when it comes to humans, some things never change. I guess not. <laughs> so right now we have four modules out, Michael. And our library is still a, f a functioning library, but it's also doubling as Santa's workshop. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I When I first came to Sibley Nature Center, to when Bailey and I were working on these paintings... I had to set up and take down wherever there was a space available. And so it was very frustrating not having a space dedicated to work on a project. And so uh, when I got started on this Pleistocene exhibit, I, I could tell that, that there were still understirings that that could happen with this as well. And since I've been there a while, I, I feel like that... Uh, I should have something to say about it, and uh, I did. And so uh, I, I guess I was convincing enough to have the library dedicated to this project with the understanding that once all is said and done, it will be a fully functioning library once again. But right now, it's, it's doubling as my workshop, too. Yeah, right now you have, I don't know, eight, maybe nine tables in there with your... Um, future modules kind of staged yes everything is everything is staged out and uh wherever there's a flat surface there's something <laughs> occupying that flat surface right now <laughs> well we michael we just uh want to celebrate this um this amazing exhibit that you're working we know you're working so hard on michael we want to thank you for your time absolutely it's my pleasure thank you for uh, thank you for asking and we want to invite um anybody and everybody to come out to Sibley and see the modules that are already out on, on the museum floor. Uh, please spread the word and 
you know, more to come as as we announce um, the modules being rolled out, and we may have a soft opening and a little reception where Mr. Nickel can give a, a nice uh, a nice brief on on the exhibit. But um, again, thank you, Michael. This is this is an awesome. Exhibit. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. With that, again, we also want to say uh, thank you to the Recording Library of West Texas for the use of their studio. Um, thank you, Bailey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sibley Nature Center podcast. Once again, we had a great time recording this and talking about uh, this exhibit, Michael. Um, tune in next time where we'll continue to cover any kind of nature uh, topic here from the Yano Estacado. Uh, Michael, again, thank you for being here and sharing your knowledge with us. Until next time, head outside to wander and wonder.